Bienvenue. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Bordeaux, episode 10. I'm Marion Jones and this is the last episode in the Bordeaux series, so slightly different from all the ones which came before. The anthology episode, when I'm going to take some various readings from authors who lived in Bordeaux or wrote about Bordeaux and string them all together in an episode to just give you some sideways things to think about when you're contemplating Bordeaux. That's whether you've been, whether you're planning a visit, or whether you're just plain interested. When it comes to thinking about literary Bordeaux, there are always three names that come up. They're known collectively as the three M's. That's Montaigne and Montesquieu, philosophers from previous centuries, and Mauriac, the 20th century novelist. There are statues of Montaigne and Montesquieu at Quinconce in the centre of the city. Larger than life they are, looking down at you, wisely of course. And there's also a statue of François Mauriac in the Jardin Public. So Bordeaux still takes all three of these men rather seriously. So, for the episode, I'm going to have a look at each in turn, a mini-biography, one or two extracts of what they wrote, and then, following on from that, Extracts from other books set in Bordeaux. Okay then, so to make a start, I'm going to begin with the earliest born of the three M's, one Montaigne, born in fact in 1533, who grew up in the Chateau de Montaigne. That's posh, isn't it? Having a chateau named after you, or possibly being named after a chateau, chicken and egg. And he had a strange upbringing, I think we would say today. His father decreed that until he was six, Nobody but nobody was to speak to him in French. They were to address him in Latin. That would be good for his education. Although where they got the servants who spoke Latin, I'm not too sure. But I am reliably informed that indeed they did. Anyway, this didn't do Montaigne too much harm, I don't think, because he went on to study law, went off to Toulouse to do that, but returned to Bordeaux and did various worthy jobs, such as working in the tax court and taking a seat at the Bordeaux Parliament. But, lucky man, not too long into his career, he was able to give it all up because he was well enough off to sit at home and do lots of reading and thinking and writing. And that's what he chose to do. He set up the most fantastic library in one of the towers of his castle and that became his refuge. A room filled with a thousand books or more, which for the 16th century was really quite a thing, decorated with Greek and Latin inscriptions, the place where he could sit and write his essays. The essays being his best-known works today, I think. And he published two books of them, the first of which came out in 1580. He emerged from his library occasionally to supervise the running of his estate or to go on travels. He went, for example, to Germany and Switzerland and Austria and wrote up a journal de voyage, a travel journal. Rich, I read in, quote, picturesque episodes, encounters, evocations and descriptions. But this idyllic life came to a bit of a halt in 1581 because, whether he liked it or not, the people of Bordeaux elected him as their mayor and he felt obliged to accept. He ruled over quite a turbulent time, actually. There was a plague in which a third of the population of the city died. There were some of the endless religious conflicts that we're always reading about. And, probably thankfully for him, eventually he was able to re-retire, go back to his chateau and his library, and do more reading, thinking and writing. As to what he wrote about, this is what he had to say. I am myself the matter of my book. 
So he wrote about his own experiences and thoughts and tried to relate them more widely to the state of man, the human condition, that sort of thing. He was quite unusual for his time because his take was that you should examine other people's ideas and if they were good, revise your own. And if you learnt things from reading, from travel, wherever, perhaps that too should influence your thinking. I read too that he was rather fond of writing candid descriptions of his own bodily functions. So then, let's have a look at one or two of the things which he penned, always remembering that this was 450 or so years ago. I think one of my favourites is his description of his library. He was very fond of his library and wrote of it, It's on the third story of a tower. The first story constitutes my chapel, the second a bedchamber with a dressing room, where I often sleep when I want to be alone, and above that is a large drawing room. My library is round in shape, squared off only for the needs of my table and chair. As it curves round, it offers me a glance at every one of my books, ranged on five shelves all the way along. It has three splendid and unhampered views, and a circle of free space, 16 yards in diameter. Don't you just envy him, that wonderful library? He goes on to explain that he really likes the idea of being able to shut himself away from other people. Or, as he put it, wretched the man who has nowhere in his house where he can be by himself, pay court to himself in private and hide away. And more of the same a bit later in the same essay. I find that it is somewhat more tolerable to be always alone than never to be able to be so. He wrote another essay called On the Power of the Imagination and it was full of anecdotes and little stories. Here's one which I enjoyed. There was a woman who believed she had swallowed a pin in her bread. She yelled and screamed as though she felt an insufferable pain in her throat where she thought she could feel it stuck. But since there was no swelling nor external symptoms, one clever fellow concluded that it was all imagination and opinion occasioned by a crust that had jabbed her on the way down. He made her vomit and secretly tossed a bent pin into what she'd brought up. That woman believed that she had vomited it out and immediately felt relieved of the pain. Another of his essays was entitled On Drunkenness and in that, amongst the plethora of stories and tales that he tells, is one of a widow of chaste reputation, as he called her, who began to fear that she might be pregnant and told her neighbours that if only she had a husband, everybody would think she was expecting. Surely you are intrigued to know what happened next. Quote, As the reason for her suspicions grew bigger every day, and finally became evident, she was reduced to having a declaration made from the pulpit in her parish church, stating that if any man would admit what he had done, she promised to forgive him, and, if he so wished, to marry him. One of her young farm labourers took courage at this proclamation, and stated that he had found her one feast day by her fireside after she had drunk her wine freely. She was so deeply and provocatively asleep that he had been able to have her without waking her up. They married each other and are still alive. There's a book about Montaigne that I can also recommend, and it's called How to Live, A Life of Montaigne in One Question and Twenty Attempts at an Answer by Sarah Bakewell. It interweaves the biography of Montaigne with lots of references to his writing and it's all arranged according to 20 questions. So they're all really how to live and the 20 attempts at an answer. So the chapter headings are things like how to live, 
Don't worry about death. How to live. Question everything. And channeling his inner Edith Piaf, how to live. Reflect on everything. Regret nothing. So there then, a little flavour of what Montaigne himself wrote and an idea for a book if you want to find out more about him. You can visit his tomb, or rather his cenotaph, because he's not actually buried there, at the Musée d'Aquitaine, a big sculpture of him made the year after his death, which used to be in the entrance when the building was a university. Students would pass by and rub bits of him for luck before they took their exams. But now that it's part of the museum, the figure has been moved inside to one of the museum's rooms and lies there in splendour in a little room dedicated to Montaigne, with a long epitaph which I rather liked, praising la profondeur de ma sagesse, the depth of my wisdom, et les charmes de mon langage, and the charms of my language. And one of the plaques in the room somberly informs us that he lived fifty-nine years, seven months, and eleven days. So much then for Montaigne, and on to our second philosopher, Montesquieu, born in 1689. He too studied law, although this time at Bordeaux University. He too inherited property and became financially secure, so that at the age of 27 he was also able to withdraw and write. Round about the age of 30, out came his book Persian Letters, which he actually wrote anonymously because it was a satirical portrait of France, mocking Louis XIV, that was quite dangerous, mocking Catholicism, also not a great idea. He moved to Paris where he was elected to the Académie Française. He went on foreign travel tours too, to Venice and Vienna and Hungary, and to England. When he came back to France, he went back to writing and wrote a weighty tome called The Spirit of Laws, which ran to a thousand pages, and which I've seen described as one of the great works in the history of political theory. I think because it was wide-ranging. Its author, went on the quote, had acquainted himself with all previous schools of thought, but identified himself with none. I thought about reading an extract from it, but it's really quite dry. It's all about the different types of government, the importance of the separation of powers, legislative, executive, judicial. So he was ahead of his time in many ways, but it doesn't make for fascinating reading. His Persian letters, I found, were much more readable. So the idea there was that it was all written by two Persian noblemen, Uzbek and Rika, who had come to France, travelled round, this is the France of Louis XIV, and just into the regency of Louis XV, when Louis XIV died, and he used it as a vehicle to give his thoughts on all manner of things. In one letter, number 99 in fact, he opens like this, I find the caprices of fashion among the French astonishing. They have forgotten how they were dressed last summer and have even less idea of how they will be dressed this winter. But the truly unbelievable thing is the cost to a husband of maintaining his wife in fashion. It keeps changing, he says. A woman leaving Paris for six months in the country returns as old-fashioned as if she disappeared for thirty years. And he gives an example. Sometimes coiffure go up gradually to be lowered all at once by a style revolution, at one time, their immense height put the woman's face in her middle. At another, her feet are there, with her pedestal heels holding them high in the air. Who would believe it? He allows himself all kinds of thoughts about women, which certainly wouldn't be permissible today. One wonders if they were then, really. Here he is, for example, in the 34th letter of the book, 
on the difference between Persian women and French women. Quote, Persian women are more beautiful than French women, but the French are prettier. It is as difficult not to love the former as it is not to be pleased with the latter. The first are more tender and modest, the others more gay and spirited. What makes Persian women so fine is the regular life they lead. They do not gamble or stay up late. They do not drink wine and almost never expose themselves to the air. And as a last example, in his 24th letter, he opens by saying we arrived in Paris a month ago and goes on to talk about things he has noticed about the Paris of his day. Quote, You may not believe that in the month I have been here, I have yet to see anyone walk. No people in the world make more use of their vehicles than the French. They run, they fly, the slow carriages of Asia, or even the pace of our camels, would throw them into a fit. In fact, he's quite struck generally by the fact that everyone's in such a hurry that they come across as really rather rude. A few lines later, he writes the following. I cannot pardon the elbowing I regularly and periodically receive. One man, passing me from behind, shoves me half around. Another, passing on the opposite side, pushes me back to my original position, and I am more weary after a hundred paces than if I had gone ten leagues. So then, a choice of readings from Montesquieu. If you want a thousand pages of weighty ponderings about how government should work, he did that. And if you prefer a bit of gossip and French from the 18th century, then the Persian letters are perhaps more your thing. Moving on to our third M, François Mauriac, Nobel Prize winning novelist, born in 1885 in another well-off family. He too studied at Bordeaux University, but he too abandoned all of that to write. I think it would be fair to say that he was very much a Catholic author. There are religious themes in, I think, all his novels. And he writes too about the strictures of bourgeois life in Bordeaux, very much centred on the town. He himself said, My books bear witness that, although I live in Paris, I have never left Bordeaux. It would be truer to say that Bordeaux has never left me. I noticed in the Encyclopaedia Britannica a description which was, shall we say, perhaps less than 100% enthusiastic about his work. Quote, his major novels are sombre, austere psychological dramas set in an atmosphere of unrelieved tension. And actually, if you listen to the titles of some of his best-known works, you might see what that means. One from 1922 was called Kissing a Leper. In 1925 came The Desert of Love. And a family novel written in 1932 was called The Nest of Vipers. Perhaps his best-known novel today had the heroine's name as a title, Thérèse Desquerou, all about a young wife from a Bordeaux family who lives such a suffocating life that she's driven to attempt the murder of her husband. Comedies, I think it's fair to say, they are not. But in 1933, he was elected to the Académie Française, and a good clutch of his novels are still read today. So, some ideas. The Knot of Vipers. So the plot summary would go... Something like, it's a letter from the main character, Louis, who's on his deathbed, and he's writing to his wife a letter which he wants her to find after he's died, in which he disinherits her and their children. That's the opening chapter, and then the rest of the novel is really an explanation of how it is he's come to feel so bitter towards his own family. In a nutshell, he married Isabelle, even though his mother told her not to. 
she's after your money, said the mother. And then he discovers that she'd already been engaged to somebody else. And he's so bitter about that, that he really can't get over it. And although they live together and have three children, and he allows himself plenty of affairs, he just never gets over it. And now that he's dying of a heart condition, is lying in an upstairs bedroom, listening to the family below, speculating about the wealth that he might leave them, he decides he's going to find other heirs. The plot of Thérèse Desquerue is hardly more cheerful, opens with Thérèse walking free from court, where she's been acquitted of trying to poison her husband. She'd given him an overdose of his own medicine. It becomes clear that she had tried to do this, that everyone knew that, but the family wanted their honour maintained, and they felt that having a daughter-in-law found guilty of such a heinous crime would ruin them, so more important than having the truth out was keeping it quiet. Result, they put her into house arrest, and she spends a long, solitary confinement in her room. She's not allowed to see their daughter, she's not allowed to socialise with anybody else. It's all really very suffocating. There are lots of descriptions very much rooted in the area. For example, this one about the very endless heat of a summer's day. The plain beneath gave itself to the sun, in a silence as deep as when it sleeps under the moon. The land ringed the horizon in an immense black semicircle on which the metallic sky pressed like a weight. Not a man, not an animal would stir out of doors till four o'clock. The flies buzzed but made no effort to move away. They were no less motionless than the pillar of smoke rising from the plain, straight and still in the airless heat. And here, from a different chapter, another reference to the sultry heat and the dangers that this very hot weather can cause. Week followed week without so much as a drop of rain. Bernard lived in constant terror of fire. He was suffering from his heart again. More than a thousand acres had been burned over at Lucia. If the wind had been from the north, I should have lost my Balizac pines. Meanwhile, Thérèse is upstairs listening to all of this. And here, a few lines later, is an indication of what she's thinking. In the family circle, there was a never-ending discussion about what caused these disasters. Was it a discarded cigarette, or was it deliberate mischief? Thérèse liked to imagine that one of these nights she would get up, leave the house, reach the most inflammable part of the forest, throw away her cigarette, and watch the great column of smoke stain the dawn sky. But she drove the thought from her for the love of pine trees was in her blood. It was not them that she hated. So, François Mauriac, the last of our three great M's from Bordeaux, and to follow then a few extracts from other works connected to the city. Bordeaux's long been an intellectual centre. Its ancient university has a long-standing reputation. It became a centre of printing too in the 16th century. Somebody from there, Simon Milange, set up a printing works, and soon became the king's printer, which meant that lots of books were published in the area, on religion, on science, on literature. He it was, in fact, who published the first edition of Montaigne's essays. And yes, of course there was Montaigne, but there was also his friend, Pierre de Brach, another 16th century Bordeaux lawyer, friend of Montaigne, and poet. He wrote a lovely poem called Hymn to Bordeaux, a description of the harbour, its colourful flags on masts, waving in the breeze, his musings about how so many foreigners from so many different places came to Bordeaux, and all had different names for it. The Moon Port, the Gascony Port, 
the wine port, the good, the strong, the tranquil, the happy, and, quote, a thousand other names. So a poem from the 16th century reminding us that this idea of Bordeaux as a harbour and a centre of trade and a haven for boats and people from all over the world goes back a long, long way. Another book which I could definitely recommend is The Summer Queen by Elizabeth Chadwick. It's actually the first of a trilogy. It's fiction, but historically accurate, and it's the story of Eleanor of Aquitaine. So the first volume, The Summer Queen, covers her marriage to King Louis and the affair that she then went on to have with the man who became Henry II of England. And the next two books, The Winter Crown and The Autumn Throne, tell the rest of Eleanor's story. Extracts from The Summer Queen can tell you lots about her early life. So, for example, here she is, Eleanor that is, on the evening when she first meets her husband-to-be, Prince Louis, soon to be king when his father dies, and although it's the first time that they've met each other, it is in fact only two or three days before the wedding which has been planned for them by others. Louis had brought her all manner of gifts, quote, there were books with ivory cover panels, reliquaries, boxes of precious stones, silver chalices, glass cups from the workshops of Tyre, tappy rugs, bolts of fine fabric. And, as Louis explains, you have given me the coronet of Aquitaine, he says. It would be a poor thing indeed if I could not gift my bride with the wealth of France in return. And at that moment, Elizabeth Chadwick writes, Alienor, as she's called in the book, felt a frisson of resentment. Quote, Although she owed him homage as a vassal of France, Aquitaine belonged to her, and always would, no matter that he was to be invested with the ducal coronet after their wedding. At least the marriage contract stipulated that her lands were not to be absorbed into France, but were to remain a separate duchy. So you're left very much wondering how this is all going to play out. And a few pages later, the description of the wedding is very readable. You might remember that it took place in July 1137 at the cathedral, the Saint-André Cathedral, in the centre of Bordeaux. And there's a description of the procession through the streets to get there, and then this about Eleanor herself. Eleanor took a deep breath and set her feet upon the narrow carpet of fresh green reeds, strewn with herbs and pink roses. The trail of flowers led her down the long nave, towards the altar steps. Acolytes swung silver censers on jingling chains, and the perfume of frankincense rose and curled in pale smoke around the vaulted ceiling, mingling with the voices of the choir. Petronella, that's her sister, and three other young women bore the weight of her pearl-encrusted train, and her maternal uncle, Raoul de Fay, paced at her side to represent her male kinfolk. Her skirts flared out and swished back with each step. Occasionally she felt the soft pressure of a crushed rose underfoot, and it seemed almost like a portent. There's a description of Louis, too, wearing a blue silk tunic embroidered with fleur-de-lis, so the royal symbol, wearing a coronet set with pearls and sapphires, and then this description of the moment when they meet at the altar. As Eleanor joined him at the altar steps, the sun rayed down through the cathedral windows, illuminating her and Louis in slanting swords of transparent gold. He held out his hand, slender and pale, and gave her the faintest curve of his lips in greeting. She hesitated, and then put her own right hand into his keeping, and together they knelt and bent their heads. 
and for something completely different coming right up to the 21st century, the madcap story by Rory Smith called Bordeaux Private Eye. Its plot centres around two quayside photographers, as they're described, so people who spend their time down at the quayside photographing people from cruise ships, and they're called Bill Smith and Polly Smith. But they have a second string to their bow because they've overheard some bits and pieces and they're on the trail of two murderous lawyers. So there is a plot, but much more importantly, I think, there's a lot of other stuff. Bits of imaginings, other stories, detours and diversions, many of which have a very definite Bordeaux flavour. For example, part of the plot hinges on a newspaper story that the Bill's read about a girl who drowned in the River Garonne, and he decides to go down and have a look at where it happened. And a little description follows of the riverside down at the centre of Bordeaux with its magnificent 18th century waterfront buildings, pretty as a picture, and then this. But it's the river we need to focus on here. A first impression is that it is wide and brown, a slow-moving, lazy old river. This is deceptive. Even though Bordeaux is 80 miles from the sea, the river is still fiercely tidal as it passes through the city. There's also the flow of water coming down from headwaters up-country. So, if you were to stand on the Pont de Pierre and look over the parapet, you would be surprised at the swirling current and the speed of the river. Certainly, if you tumbled into the Garonne from any of the bridges that span it, you'd have to be a strong swimmer to reach the bank. So, lots of mentions of Bordeaux and places that you will recognise, if you've been, but also lots of really rather crazy little asides. Here, for example, is one on Michel de Montaigne, no less, because the mystery of his burial and reburial gets worked into the plot. Quote, Michel de Montaigne, Bordeaux's own homegrown philosopher, died in 1592, leaving behind a collection of essays which, in today's edition, comes in at over a thousand pages, which is obviously too much for any normal person to read. It's like being faced with one of those enormous burgers that you can't get into your mouth, so you are forced to attack it with knife and fork. In fact, if you were to drop a modern edition of the Essays of Michel de Montaigne on your foot, you would certainly need a trip to the hospital. It is that sort of book. But if you're interested, you can buy edited versions which contain the best bits. He is folksy and full of good homespun common sense. For instance, after a brush with death, when he fell from his horse, he wrote, If you don't know how to die, don't worry. Nature will tell you what to do on the spot, fully and adequately. She will do this job perfectly for you. Don't bother your head about it. And to finish then, two books about the World War II era in Bordeaux. One of which I've already mentioned in episode 5, which was all about wartime in Bordeaux. And that's A Game of Spies by Paddy Ashtown. Actually, not fiction, a true story about all the shenanigans in Bordeaux during the war. So, with German characters from the occupying forces and British special operations people sent over from London to try and thwart the Germans, and at least two contingencies of the French, some working for the resistance, others collaborating with the Germans. And again, lots and lots of little asides about the city. Here, for example, one of the English special operations men has just arrived in Bordeaux and he's strolling through looking for a place where he's been told he may be able to make contact with some of the people he needs to work with. 
So he strolls through the Place des down to the riverside, and then, quote, he walked north up the Quai des Chartrons, crowded with small merchant vessels and German warships, busy with the clatter of cranes, small goods trains and lorries. Here were quayside bars and chandleries and the opposing shop windows of the great wine merchants. On the opposite side of the road, a line of new warehouses marched along the quay, stretching north into the haze. It was there, in the Bacalon quarter, as he remembered from the map he'd studied back in London, that he would find number 101, the Café des Chartrons, the rendezvous he had fixed with Yvonne Roudelin the previous day. And then, later in the story, the same land is going to what he thinks is a safe house. He enters the street, sees a man standing around that he doesn't take too much notice of, goes into the house and is immediately met by the daughter of the family, who's only 16, and tells him, they searched the house this morning at 8.30, every room, behind the furniture, behind the cupboards, they emptied the drawers, they even sounded out the walls. Then they took Mother away. Did they find the radio? he asks. No. Land looks out of the various windows trying to decide what to do, and he realises there's actually only one thing he can do, go out by the same way he came in, and just hope that he won't be stopped. This is what happens next. He took the colt from the suitcase and put it in his pocket. Then, using an old piece of elastic rope, he strapped the case containing his wireless onto the carrier of his bicycle, told the girl to check from an upstairs window that the Gestapo watcher was still concentrating on the house, not on the garage next door, and that the street was clear. She shouted down that all seemed okay. Land opened the garage door and pushed his bicycle out, coolly locking the door behind him. The German watcher, as before, paid no attention. But then, disaster. As Land wheeled his bike over the cobbles, the rope snapped, sending the case flying off its carrier and landing with a crash at the Gestapo man's feet. He bent down to pick up the suitcase. I put my hand on the colt in my pocket, ready to shoot him. But instead, he helped me put my suitcase back on the bicycle. He had been told to look out for a British officer, and I didn't look like one at all. I should have mentioned at the beginning that Land was actually half French, although he was working for the British Special Operations. It really is a cracking read. I think it might be my favourite of all the Bordeaux books I looked at. And that episode, I hope, gives an indication of how tense it can be. And lastly, a fictional work about the same period called Death in Bordeaux by Alan Massey. It's actually one of a series of four, but this one is the opening of the series and it centres around one Detective Lannes, who is investigating a grisly murder with which the book opens, but very much against the background of early wartime Bordeaux, so 1940. So, for example, the detective has one son who's fighting at the front. He has a younger teenage son, still at home, about whom he worries constantly that he's going to get involved in the resistance and get himself into trouble. There are references to lots of actual historical events, Pétain's speech, for example, as France is divided up into the occupied zone and the free zone, descriptions of occupied Bordeaux, a scene which really happened about the execution of the Jew Israel Carp outside the railway station. He'd shaken a stick at German soldiers, and that was his punishment to send a message to the rest of the population. There were lots of everyday references too, so phone tapping, the drinking of Erzatz coffee because you couldn't get the real stuff, the fact that the son's school building is requisitioned by the Germans, the curfew that takes place every night. 
the Jewish character Leon, who loses his job because he's told that, quote, the bank must be Jew-free, and alongside lots of little descriptions of Bordeaux. This one, for example. The rain had stopped. Lannis limped back across the public garden, where drops still fell heavily from the branches of the chestnut trees, turned down the Cours Clemenceau and into the Allée de Tourny. Stendhal had written somewhere that he didn't know a more beautiful street anywhere in France, and Lannes, Bordelais by birth and long residence, was content to agree. Or this little description dated April the 24th, 1940. Instead of returning to his office, Lannes settled himself at a table on the terrace of a café in the Place de la Comédie. The sunlight sparkled on the Corinthian columns of the theatre, and the atmosphere was animated, as if with the arrival of spring it was possible to set aside all thoughts of war. And just to finish then, a couple of descriptions of the Germans and their arrival in Bordeaux to occupy the city. Quote, there were German soldiers everywhere, many with cameras as if they were tourists, and while they gaped at the sights and snapped them, ordinary Bordelais, going about their business, and now for the most part rid of the refugees who had flocked back to Paris and the north, stared at them. This too was a sort of tourism. And finally, this one. It was a bright, cold morning with a sharp wind blowing in from the Atlantic. A German tank and two armoured cars were parked by the monument to the Girondins. Their crews stood by the vehicles, chatting and smoking. They looked to have not a care in the world. One of them laughed. It's as if they owned the place, he thought, as if they owned us. And then, for the moment, they do. But it will change. Some day it must. We'll chase them out, back over the Rhine. Meanwhile, we have to endure it, and them filthy bosh. If you get into the story, you may well want to read the three next books in the series, which are entitled Dark Summer in Bordeaux, Cold Winter in Bordeaux, and End Games in Bordeaux. Fitting then that we should end the episode with a reference to End Games. Indeed, end the series. This is the last episode that I have planned on Bordeaux. So, if you've been with us since the beginning, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard, perhaps felt motivated to go and visit Bordeaux, or maybe had a nice time reminiscing if you've already been. Maybe you've just been intrigued and learnt a few things you didn't know about that southern French city. It's history and what there is to see there, should you ever visit. Just a quick reminder that there's a blog post to go with every episode. And if you check that out, you'll find a summary of the contents of the episode, some pictures and all the links that you need to find the places that we've talked about visiting or indeed to find the books that we've talked about reading. The Bordeaux blog posts are being written as the episodes go out, so they're always up to date. Other cities were on catch up, about halfway there, I think, at the moment. So it shouldn't be too many months until there really is a blog post on every episode that I've produced. Anyway, it just remains to say thank you very much from Bordeaux and that we will perhaps meet again before too long, either because you decide to have a look at one of the other series which is already up on the website or because maybe you'll be joining me for my brand new series which will start, I hope, in just a few weeks' time. Thank you then and goodbye. Merci et au revoir.